Did you know insects can manipulate the human soul? I have proof. Hey, hey, everyone, this is Terry. And as you know, Bob, it's the end of the year and we are all incredibly busy. On top of the usual busyness and the end of the year busyness, I've got this new project that I'm really excited about and working on, but it means that I have less time than usual and that really stresses me out. So, how about for today's episode of Uncanny Japan? We read a gentle, strange story by Lafcario Hearn, or Koizumi Yakumo if you know him by his Japanese name. This one is from Kaidan, Stories and Studies of Strange Things, and it's called The Dream of Akinosuke. And yes, it's about bugs doing weird things with a human soul. Uncanny Japan is author me, Teresa Matsura, exploring all that is weird from old Japan. Strange superstitions and old wives' tales. Cultural oddities and interesting language quirks. These are little treasures I dig up while doing research for my writing, and I want to share them with you here on Uncanny Japan. I hope you like the show. Let me tell you about a new, fun, and absolutely gorgeous game I think you're going to like. The story goes like this. After an unfortunate turn of events, Princess Sakuna is banished to the mysterious Hinoe Island near the border between heaven and earth. Here, together with her colorful companions, our princess must make a home by weathering the elements, cultivating the soil, and battling the hordes of demonic beasts that have overrun the island. Princess Sakuna just happens to be the daughter of a harvest goddess and a warrior god. This comes in handy as she farms the land to not only better the lives of the children of man, but also increase her strength and combat abilities. Those will come in handy when she ventures into deep forests, rushing rivers, secret grottos, and a towering volcano to fight the various beasts and monsters, complete quests, and unlock even more options. The game is called Sakuna of Rice and Ruin. It's a refined side-scrolling platform action game inspired by Japanese mythology, but features many unique twists. Sakuna of Rice and Ruin will be available for PlayStation 4, Nintendo Switch, and Windows PCs. In the U.S., you can get your hands on the game November 10th. In Japan, look out for it on November 12th. And in Europe, November 20th is the big day. Now, if you're a fan of limited editions, the European and U.S. ones will include a full three-disc soundtrack as well as a gorgeous 130-page art book. For PS4, you can get a digital deluxe edition, which includes the full soundtrack as well as console themes and avatars. I really can't convey how beautiful and charming the game looks. So if you're intrigued, please go to sakunaofriceandruin.com. Sakuna is spelled S-A-K-U-N-A of Rice and Ruin, R-U-I-N. And there you can learn more, check out the enchanting graphics, and consider those limited editions. 
the dream of Akinosuke. In the district of Toichi of Yamato province, there used to live a goshi named Miyata Akinosuke. Here, I must tell you that in Japanese feudal times, there was a privileged class of soldier farmers, freeholders, corresponding to the class of yeomen in England, and these were called goshi. In Akinosuke's garden, there was a great and ancient cedar tree, under which he was wont to rest on sultry days. One very warm afternoon, he was sitting under this tree with two friends, fellow goshi, chatting and drinking wine, when he felt all of a sudden very drowsy, so drowsy that he begged his friends to excuse him for taking a nap in their presence. Then he lay down at the foot of the tree and dreamed this dream. He thought that as he was lying there in his garden, he saw a procession, like the train of some great daimyo descending a hill nearby, and that he got up to look at it. A very grand procession it proved to be, more imposing than anything of the kind which he had ever seen before and it was advancing toward his dwelling. He observed in the van of it a number of young men richly apparelled, who were drawing a great lacquered palace carriage, a gosho guruma, hung with bright blue silk. When the procession arrived within a short distance of the house, it halted, and a richly dressed man, evidently a person of rank, advanced from it, approached Akinosuke, bowed to him profoundly, and then said, Honored sir, you see before you a keirai, a vassal of the kokuo of Tokoyo. My master, the king, commands me to greet you in his august name and to place myself wholly at your disposal. He also bids me inform you that he augustly desires your presence at the palace. Be therefore pleased immediately to enter this honorable carriage. Upon hearing these words, Akinosuke wanted to make some fitting reply, but he was too much astonished and embarrassed for speech, and in the same moment his will seemed to melt away from him, so that he could only do as the Kedai bade him. He entered the carriage. The Kedai took a place beside him and made a signal. The drawers, seizing the silken ropes, turned the great vehicle southward, and the journey began. In a very short time, to Akinosuke's amazement, the carriage stopped in front of a huge two-storied gateway of a Chinese style, which he had never before seen. Here the Kedai dismounted, saying, I go to announce the honorable arrival and he disappeared. After some little waiting, Akinosuke saw two noble-looking men wearing robes of purple silk and high caps of the form indicating lofty rank come from the gateway. These, after having respectfully saluted him, helped him to descend from the carriage and led him through the great gate and across a vast garden to the entrance of a palace whose front appeared to extend 
west and east to a distance of miles. Akinosuke was then shown into a reception room of wonderful size and splendor. His guys conducted him to the place of honor and respectfully seated themselves apart, while serving maids in costume of ceremony brought refreshments. When Akinosuke had partaken of the refreshments, the two purple-robed attendants bowed low before him and addressed him in the following words, each speaking alternately according to the etiquette of courts. It is now our honorable duty to inform you as to the reason of your having been summoned hither. Our master, the king, augustly desires that you become his son-in-law, and it is his wish and command that you shall wed this very day. The august princess, his maiden daughter, we shall soon conduct you to the presence chamber, where his augustness even now is waiting to receive you. But it will be necessary that we first invest you with the appropriate garments of ceremony. Having thus spoken, the attendants rose together, and proceeded to an alcove containing a great chest of gold lacquer. They opened the chest and took from it various robes and girdles and rich material, and a kamuri, or regal headdress. With these they attired Akinosuke as befitted a princely bridegroom, and he was then conducted to the presence room, where he saw the kokuo of Tokoyo seated upon the daiza wearing a high black cap of state and robed in robes of yellow silk. Before the daiza, to the left and right, a multitude of dignitaries sat in rank, motionless and splendid as images in a temple, and Akinosuke, advancing into their midst, saluted the king with the triple prostration of usage. The king greeted him, with gracious words, and then said, You have already been informed as to the reason of your having been summoned to our presence. We have decided that you shall become the adopted husband of our only daughter, and the wedding ceremony shall now be performed. As the king finished speaking, a sound of joyful music was heard, and a long train of beautiful court ladies advanced from behind a curtain to conduct Akinosuke to the room in which his bride awaited him. The room was immense, but it could scarcely contain the multitude of guests assembled to witness the wedding ceremony. All bowed down before Akinosuke as he took his place, facing the king's daughter on the kneeling cushion prepared for him. As a maiden of heaven the bride appeared to be, and her robes were beautiful as a summer sky, and the marriage was performed amid great rejoicing. Afterwards, the pair were conducted to a suite of apartments that had been prepared for them in another portion of the palace, and there they received the congratulations of many noble persons and wedding gifts beyond counting. Some days later, Akinosuke was again summoned to the throne room. On this occasion, he was received even more graciously than before, and the king said to him, In the southwestern part of our dominion, there is an island called Laishu, 
we have now appointed you governor of that island. You will find the people loyal and docile, but their laws have not yet been brought into proper accord with the laws of Tokoyo, and their customs have not been properly regulated. We entrust you with the duty of improving their social condition as far as may be possible, and we desire that you shall rule them with kindness and wisdom. All preparations necessary for your journey to Raishu have already been made. So Akinosuke and his bride departed from the palace of Tokoyo, accompanied to the shore by a great escort of nobles and officials, and they embarked upon a ship of state provided by the king, and with favoring winds they safely sailed to Raishu and found the good people of that island assembled upon the beach to welcome them. Akinosuke entered at once upon his new duties, and they did not prove to be hard. During the first three years of his governorship, he was occupied chiefly with the framing of the enactment of laws. But he had wise counselors to help him, and he never found the work unpleasant. When it was all finished, he had no active duties to perform, beyond attending the rites and ceremonies ordained by ancient custom. The country was so healthy and so fertile that sickness and want were unknown, and the people were so good that no laws were ever broken, and Akinosuke dwelt and ruled in Raishu for twenty years more, making in all twenty-three years of sojourn during which no shadow of sorrow traversed his life. But in the twenty-fourth year of his governorship, a great misfortune came upon him, for his wife, who had borne him seven children, five boys and two girls, fell sick and died. She was buried with high pomp on the summit of a beautiful hill in the district of Hanyoko, and a monument exceedingly splendid was placed upon her grave. But Akinosuke felt such grief at her death that he no longer cared to live. Now, when the legal period of mourning was over, there came to Raishu from the Tokoyo Palace a shisha, or royal messenger. The shisha delivered to Akinosuke a message of condolence, and then said to him, these are the words which our august master, the king of Tokyo, commands that I repeat to you. We will now send you back to your own people and country. As for the seven children, they are the grandsons and granddaughters of the king and shall be fitly cared for. Do not, therefore, allow your mind to be troubled concerning them. On receiving this mandate... Akinosuke submissively prepared for his departure. When all his affairs had been settled and the ceremony of bidding farewell to his counselors and trusted officials had been concluded, he was escorted with much honor to the port. There he embarked upon the ship sent for him, and the ship sailed out into the blue sea under the blue sky and the shape of the island of Raishu itself turned blue, and then turned gray, and then vanished forever. And Akinosuke suddenly awoke 
under the cedar tree in his own garden. For a moment he was stupefied and dazed, but he perceived his two friends still seated near him, drinking and chatting merrily. He stared at them in a bewildered way and cried aloud, How strange! Akinosuke must have been dreaming! One of them exclaimed with a laugh, What did you see, Akinosuke, that was so strange? Then Akinosuke told them his dream, that dream of three and twenty years sojourn in the realm of Tokoyo in the island of Raishu. And they were astonished because he had really slept for no more than a few minutes. One Goshi said, Indeed, you saw strange things. We also saw something strange while you were napping. A little yellow butterfly was fluttering over your face for a moment or two, and we watched it. Then it alighted on the ground beside you, close to the tree. And almost as soon as it alighted there, a big, big ant came out of the hole and seized it and pulled it down into the hole. Just before you woke up, we saw that very butterfly come out of the hole again and flutter over your face as before. And then it suddenly disappeared. We do not know where it went. Perhaps it was Akinosuke's soul, the other Goshi said. Certainly I thought I saw it fly into his mouth. But even if that butterfly was Akinosuke's soul, the fact would not explain his dream. The ants might explain it returned the first speaker. Ants are queer beings, possibly goblins. Anyhow, there is a big ant's nest under the cedar tree. Let us look, cried Akinosuke, greatly moved by the suggestion. And he went for a spade. The ground about and beneath the cedar tree proved to have been excavated in the most surprising way by a prodigious colony of ants. The ants had furthermore built inside their excavations, and there tiny constructions of straw, clay, and stems bore an odd resemblance to miniature towns. In the middle of the structure, considerably larger than the rest, there was a marvelous swarming of small ants around the body of one very big ant which had yellowish wings and a long black head. Why, there is the king in my dream, cried Akinosuke, and there is the palace of Tokoyo. How extraordinary! Raishu ought to lie somewhere southwest of it, to the left of that big root. Yes, here it is. How very strange! Now I am sure I can find the mountain of Hanyoko and the grave of my princess. In the wreck of the nest he searched and searched, and at last he discovered a tiny mound on the top of which was fixed a water-worn pebble in shape resembling a Buddhist monument. Underneath it he found, embedded in clay, the dead body of a female ant. The End
thank each and every one of you for listening and always my beautiful patrons who shine with an ethereal and extraordinary light. Speaking of that, thank you all who are also helping me get closer to my little goal of 200 patrons by the end of the year. We are a little over 180 at the moment, and that's closer than we were when I first mentioned it a couple podcasts ago. Oh, and those patrons already know what my new project is. I really like running ideas by them and getting their valuable input. I need to make a little more headway before I can reveal here, but I'm expecting I can spill shortly. So keep an ear out for that. Anyway, everyone, thank you again. Stay healthy and safe, and I will talk to you in two weeks. Bye-bye. You've just reached the end of another episode of Uncanny Japan. Perhaps you'd like more. A monthly folktale translated and retold by me. The occasional binarily mic'd soundscape like the ones you hear on the show. Or recipes, behind-the-curtain episodes, homemade postcards, and more. If you're interested in that or supporting the show in any way, please search for Uncanny Japan and Patreon. We've got a wonderful group over there. Thank you again for listening, supporting, reviewing, and telling your friends about the show. My name is Teresa Matsura, and I will talk to you again soon.